Okay. If you have Bibles with you, please open up to the Gospel of John, chapter 13. Um, I'm not returning yet to the Gospel of John. I'm just going to teach a message on love today, and that's where I find uh, today's text. Um, last week, we were happy to have uh, Vineyard Canada Atlantic Regional Leaders with us, Rick and Kathy Berry. It was a blessing to, to ha have them here at Shawtown Community Church on a Sunday morning. Uh, one more touch point, one more connecting point uh, between us and the, and the larger uh, Vineyard family. Um, we have, between Nadine and I, and, and events that uh, the Vineyard in Canada, especially in the Atlantic region, the events that they host, we're, we have four to six, sometimes as many as seven or eight touch points throughout the year. <clears throat> the Atlantic region has its unique challenges. Um, in the Maritimes, it's not like, oh, I'll get in the car and drive 45 minutes or an hour and I could be at another vineyard church. You've got to cross a body of water one way or the other if you're going to connect with one of those other churches. So we have to be a bit more intentional. Uh, we have to be a bit more purposed. Uh, the next thing that's going to happen is uh, Rick and Kathy have invited me to uh, their church uh, in Nova Scotia to uh, Kentsville to, uh, to speak uh, the first uh, Sunday in December. I'm looking forward to that. And some of the folks from the Halifax Vineyard are going to come over as well. And so it'll be, it'll be another touch point uh, for us. So, so that was good. But the previous week, before Rick and Kathy's visit, I, um, I started a new series of messages on the topic of love. That week we looked at the profound words of Jesus in Mark chapter 12, verses 30 to 31, where Jesus says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, and all your strength. The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. And so we took a little time to, to unpack that and, and, and consider what does all mean? All means all, you know? And, and so um, it's, a, you know, it's to love him with all our thinking and with our full bodies and all our passion, to love him with all the strength that we have, to love God with nothing held back. It was, if you haven't heard that message, you might enjoy it. It's on the church website. So today I'm going to continue that series with Jesus' equally uh, profound words, but these are in John chapter 13, uh, verses 34 and 35. So if you have a Bible with you, you can follow along as I read, or um, the, the, verse will be, the couple of verses will be right up there on the screen behind me. So this is what Scripture says. This is what Jesus says in John 13. He says, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Lord, I'm, I'm impacted deeply by the power of these two verses. I pray for grace today to communicate the power and truth in your word to your people in a way that's life-giving for them. Do that for us today, Lord. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, before I um, expound on these verses, let me offer to you some of the context of what's going on here. This is what's known as the Upper Room Discourse. Jesus is celebrating his last uh, Passover with the disciples before his arrest and crucifixion. The chapter opens up with Jesus washing the disciples' feet. With Jesus washing the disciples' feet. How astonishing is that? 
that the King of kings and the Lord of lords, that the Word made flesh, that God incarnate would not just come here, but he would wash his disciples' feet. Now, I'm sure you guys have heard messages on this before, but you know that was the lowest job in the house, right? Dusty, you know, dusty uh, roadways and pathways and streets. And guys wearing sandals, you know, what, what does that look like? You know, some of us have been in church services where, they, where they'll wash someone's feet, usually during, you know, Holy Week, right? But everybody who's going to get their feet washed, they know. <laughs> Before they get there, they're going to have their feet washed. Those feet are going to be clean. They're going to have socks on with no holes in them, right? And shoes that aren't smelly. That's what I would do. Disciples didn't know Jesus was going to wash their feet. Read the context of it. Peter was really kind of freaked out by the fact that Jesus wants to do this. He washed their feet. We have an amazing God. So this is the context. He's with his closest friends, and he washes their feet. And after he washes their feet, this is what he does. He predicts that one of them is going to betray him. He predicts Judas's betrayal. It's just amazing. And I encourage you, take the time to, on your own, read chapter 13, and it's clear that Jesus washed Judas' feet before the betrayal actually took place. Jesus washed Judas' feet. Not only did Jesus wash Judas' feet, what do you think? When he chose Judas, when he picked him to be one of the disciples, did he know then? Jesus had astonishing, astonishing gifting. He certainly had foresight and foreknowledge concerning others of the disciples. Scripture doesn't tell us what Jesus knew about Judas other than that he was chosen. But my personal conviction, I think just like he knew how messed up we were when he chose us, he knew how messed up Judas was when he chose Judas. And he chose him anyway. I think he knew as he was washing Judas' feet. Probably the, probably the best experience I've ever had with washing feet is when we would do outreaches at Burning Man. We'd do these evangelistic outreaches at this incredible um, pagan festival. Out in the desert. So there people walking out in the desert, many of them barefoot. It's hot out there. These are dirty feet, man. These are really dirty feet. And what we would offer them was foot washing. And so we'd take clean water and we'd wash their feet and we'd do it tenderly and we'd do it gently. And as we wash their feet and wipe the dirt off, we'd prophesy over them. We'd speak what is not as though it is. We would tell them who God says they are. We'd prophesy their destiny and the path that they would walk on. It was powerful. It makes me wonder, what did Jesus say to each one as he washed their feet? Did he speak about their future? Did he speak about their destiny? Did he remind them of how great his love is for them? I don't know. I don't know. So first Jesus washes his feet, and then Judas betrays him. Now a few weeks ago, I told you that my all-time favorite movie is the movie Braveheart. I love this movie. It speaks to my passion for freedom. The portrayal of the Wallace character inspires me to be a better leader. And when I feel like 
<laughs> I feel deflated as a leader. I watch it and it's like, I'm just getting pumped up again. You know? it's, always been, it's always been good for me. And so in the movie, Wallace is this fierce warrior. He's unstoppable. It doesn't seem to matter how outnumbered he is. He's just, he's just ready for the fight. No matter what, he would fight for freedom. To his very last breath, Wallace would fight for freedom in the movie. Every time I talk about this movie, somebody comes up to me afterwards and says, well, you know, historically, I don't really care. I'm watching the movie, and I'm really enjoying the movie. <laughs> don't tell me about history. I'm talking about the movie. In the movie. <laughs> he fights with everything he has except for one point, and it's the betrayal scene. It's a scene, armies couldn't stop him. Fierce, well-equipped, experienced armies could not stop Wallace. But the betrayal of a friend, a trusted friend, Robert the Bruce, completely took him out. Without a word, all the fight, all the passion, all the life is drained from Wallace's warrior heart. Watch the scene. Watch especially the character of Wallace. Watch his face when he realizes he's been betrayed by his friend. And then we'll talk about it afterwards. Thank you. 
The armies didn't defeat him. The arrows sticking out of his chest didn't defeat him. The betrayal of a friend completely took him out. It completely, did you see the look on his face? It, it took all the life out of him. It took the wind out of his sails. It took all the fight out. He laid on the ground, defeated, not because of the fierceness of an army, but because he was betrayed by a friend, by a close friend. Few things have as debilitating an impact as getting stabbed in the back by the people who are supposed to watch your back. It can take out even the very best of men so deep, so incredibly deep, is the wound of betrayal. And as I look at this room, I know that some of you have experienced that. You can identify. You've had the same look on your face that Wallace had on, this, on his face. So why did I take time to show you that today? Because Jesus is not William Wallace. I thank God that Jesus is not William Wallace. When we had communion a few minutes ago, I read from 1 Corinthians 11, which it says, on the night he was betrayed, Jesus took bread and broke it. That was the night when he took the cup and established a new covenant. That was the night. That was the setting in which we have the very words that we're looking at today. Jesus is amazing. His capacity to love under the worst of circumstances is absolutely astonishing. As inspired as I am by Wallace, it's nothing compared to how impressed I am with Jesus Christ's capacity to love us. Jesus, thank God, is not William Wallace. When faced with betrayal of one of his closest friends, when betrayed by one of those people in his innermost circle, Judas. Now remember, Judas was there for lots of cool stuff. He was in the boat when Jesus calmed the storm. He was there when Scripture says everybody got healed. He was there when the food was multiplied and the disciples gave it out to people and they gathered 12 basketfuls afterwards. Judas was there for some really cool stuff. He was, he was one of the in guys. He was the inner circle. That was their small group. That was their home group. This was his friend. And in the face of that level of betrayal, the pain that it must have caused, because Jesus was acquainted with all of who we are as human beings, in that setting, he establishes a new covenant of love. In that setting, after having washed his betrayer's feet, he shares the words with us today from John 13, verses 34 and 35. Does Jesus lose heart? No. In the face of betrayal, after washing their feet, Jesus speaks profoundly about love. He doesn't speak profoundly about his pain. He doesn't speak profoundly about the issue of betrayal. He doesn't speak about friendship. He speaks about love. And what is he saying? Verses 34 and 35. A new command I give you. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must Love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples. If you love one another, what an amazing Jesus we have. He's amazing. So I want to expound 
this morning on, on three phases, uh, phrases rather, that we find in these two verses. A new command, as I have loved you, so you must, and by this everyone will know. So a new command. Now understand this. This is a room full of Hebrews celebrating Passover. Now remember, Passover is, was the prelude to the great deliverance of Israel from Egypt. This is what they're commemorating. This is what they're remembering. The powerful impact that the phrase, a new command, would have on the people gathered there, trust me, it would not be lost on these Hebrews gathering to celebrate the Passover. It would not have been lost on this audience. The Ten Commandments given by the hand of God to Moses would have been foremost in their minds when hearing this phrase. So much so, I believe that Jesus could have simply said to them, number 11, and it would have had equal impact. When he said a new command, it was at that level. It was at that level of impact. In the manner of Moses, the deliverer of Israel, Israel, Jesus, the deliverer of all humanity, issues a brand new commandment. And this command is simple and profound, and it's all-encompassing. He tells us to love one another. By itself, this would be difficult for us to accomplish. After all, the the Ten Commandments he gave us, we've been, it's been impossible for humanity to fulfill those. And this here, this word love here, it's the same word we looked at two weeks ago. The acapeo. It's a verb, an action word. Basically meaning God's love. It, it means God the Father's attitude of love towards his son, his attitude of love towards uh, humanity, and his attitude of love towards towards us as believers. It's the love that he wants us to have for one another. And it describes his very essence as simply defined in 1 John 4, 8 when it says God is love. That's this love. That's the love he's talking about. Love one another. We've been commanded, we've been commanded by God to love. It's not a suggestion. It's not a recommendation. He, not, he didn't say, if you're in the mood, I think it's a good idea. It'll go well for you if. He says, a new command. I give you. There's not a whole lot of wiggle room. It's not conditional. If they love you, a new command, love one another. If they don't betray you, a new command, love one another. He doesn't say that. He just says, a new command I give you, love one another. I don't think Jesus could have used, in that setting, more powerful language than a new command. At that night, with those people, in that room, in that setting, he commands us to love. It was real. In that setting, it was personal. It was deeply relational. And if that wasn't enough, Jesus goes on to quantify it. He says, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. Me, the one who just washed my betrayer's feet, is telling you to love one another. I command you to love one another as I have loved you. 
Not only are we commanded to love, but the standard of love is Jesus himself. Now the last time we looked at love, in Mark 12, 31, Jesus told us, love your neighbor as yourself. This new command, Jesus raises the standard. No longer are we to love others as we love ourselves, but as he's loved us. And that's important for a reason, because some of us don't love ourselves very well. <laughs> Is it any surprise that we struggle loving other people? We're not the standard in and of ourselves. Thank God. So when I consider this, when I look at this text, it begs this question. How did Jesus love us? If I'm supposed to love as he's loved me, well then how has he loved me? How has he loved us? Fair question, right? If I want to be able to do it, it might help to have some understanding. Now I don't know that we could fill a year full of Sundays just talking about the way that Jesus loved us, but for the sake of today's message, I have a, a few I want to mention. How did Jesus love us? Well, he initiated. Creation was God's idea. The incarnation was God's idea. Your salvation was God's idea. I'm not sure if I told the story before, but I can remember a time in my life where I couldn't find God. I've been a Christian for a long time, and I needed something. You ever been in that place? It's like, oh, God, if you're still real, if you're really there, I need something. I was working at the Empire State Building, and the largest Christian bookstore, in, uh, at least in New York, it might have been the largest Christian bookstore in the world, was about a 20-minute walk away from the Empire State Building. So I, this is what I figured I'd do. On my lunch, I'd walk there, I'd spend 20 minutes around the store begging that God would give me something and then walk my 20 minutes back. And so I remember getting there, and as soon as I walk in the front door, here's a, here's a display of books, um, uh, of the book by A.W. Tozer, The Pursuit of God. Anybody ever read that? It's classic, right? Only a couple of hands have gone up. This is a powerful book, and I'm thinking, I'm trying to find God, the pursuit of God. This would be great for me. So I pick up a copy of the book. First thing I see. But then I walk around the rest of the store, nothing. Nothing sticks out to me. And I'm just about to count them, and I've been carrying this book for the last 19 minutes. I'm thinking, oh, I just put it down. I won't, I won't take it with me. And then I figured, oh, I walked all this way. Because the first thing I seen, oh, I might as well pick it up. It's not that expensive. It's on sale. So I buy the book. And at the time, I would take the Long Island Railroad back and forth to work each day. And so I'm, dry, I'm riding home on the train. It's about an hour ride, maybe a little bit more. And I'm reading the book, and every few pages, I'm just weeping. And I'm weeping. I'm trying to use the book to hide my face so the other people on the train don't see how I'm crying. Because this is what the book was about. It wasn't about my pursuit of God. It was about God's pursuit of me. God initiates. We're here today because he sought you out. You were running. He chased you down and tackled you and put his love in your heart. That's what he did to me. Every time I get up and try to run away, he captures me again. God initiates. How did he love us? He initiates. You know, even the concept of having faith in God was initiated by his grace toward us. We can't even take credit for that. Even our ability to say yes to him initiates in him. That's one way that God loves us. He initiates. Another way he loves us is he came down. He reaches down to us. Jesus loved us by coming down to us. He didn't demand that we make our way up to him. He came down to us. As a matter of fact, 
There's a story in the book. In the beginning, they tried to build this tower. It didn't work out so good when we tried to make our way to God because his intention from the beginning is that he would come to us. Love reaches down. Jesus loves extravagantly the outcasts, the misfits, the half-breeds, the weak, the lost, the broken. He loves them extravagantly. He loves us in all our brokenness extravagantly. He reaches down. He still does. He never required of us that we make ourselves worthy. Never. Still he doesn't require that we make ourselves worthy. It's only his love. We're only holy because he's holy. Do you get that? You know holiness isn't the product of good behavior? Let me say that again. Holiness is not disciplined good behavior on your part. Holiness is the effect of relationship. Nadine's last name is now Zawacki. That's holiness. She's a Zawacki because I'm a Zawacki. I'm holy only because he's holy. And as we're in relationship together, his holiness becomes my holiness. She had to do nothing except say yes. She showed up that day, looked awesome in her dress. We said the words. She had my name. That's how holiness works. We never make ourselves worthy. We cannot make ourselves worthy. He makes us worthy by his love. Because he sought us. He chased us down. Like I pursued her for two years. And for a year asked her every day, will you, will you marry me? And she said no. And I kept saying, will you marry me? Until she said yes. That's how Jesus loved us. He pursues. <laughs> Best choice I ever made. After Jesus. He never required us to make ourselves ready. He simply, he simply loved us. And it changed everything. How else did Jesus love, love us? He, love is self-limiting for the sake of another. Jesus took our form. He met us at our level. He loved us sacrificially. I think it's beyond comprehension the sacrifice that Jesus made by simply taking on flesh and blood. <clears throat> it might be akin to one of us becoming an insect so that we could love a colony of insects. And I think even that analogy fails. Love is self-limiting for the sake of another. He reveals himself to us in limited glory. He has to. Because if we saw him in the fullness of his glory, we would be ashes on the floor. How does he love us? He loves us by limiting himself. We understand that a little bit. Have you ever played tic-tac-toe with a three-year-old or a four-year-old? You could beat them every game, right? But you don't. Why? You let them win. Because you love them. Love is self-limiting for the sake of another. How else, how else does he love us? Love does not demand its own way. Love grants freedom. And this might be the, one of the most astonishing facts about the God that we serve. He didn't make us little robots. He didn't demand that we function and operate a, a certain particular way. He granted us freedom. He didn't even demand that we would choose him. He gave us the option to choose our own way. I never would have done it that way. Never. That's what he did. He grants us freedom. freedom. Of course he knows the better way. 
Of course he knows the foolish choices we would make, but he allows us to make the choice nonetheless. And he loves us even when we choose poorly. He loved Judas. Holy cow. He loved Judas enough to let him be in the room that night and to wash his feet. He loved Judas enough to pick him. We have an amazing God. Love is not controlling. He loves us enough to let us make some of the most horrific mistakes. And then he loves us in the mess we've made. And he offers his loving hand as a way out of the mess. That's what love does. How else did he love us? If we're to love one another as he's loved us, how else do we do that? Well, Jesus took the hits that were meant for us. He went to the cross. He paid a debt we couldn't pay. He took the treatment. And you've heard me preach on it before. As it were, the cure, the, the chemotherapy for sin that we never would have endured in our place so that we could live. So that we could have relationship with him. Jesus endured the treatment for sin that we never would have survived. And let me tell you, that's extravagant love. Any parent here, any parent I know, and I know some, who have had children with cancer in a heartbeat, without a moment's hesitation, they would take that chemo in their child's place. Even if it killed them, because they, if, it, if they thought it would cure their kid. That's what Jesus did for us. That's what happened on the cross. How does Jesus love us? He takes the hit. He takes the hits that were meant for another. How else does he love us? He sees the long-term Big picture, without demanding instant results from us. Because he knows eventually all things will work together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. They will. His word says so. Jesus prayed and asked the Father in John 17, Lord, make them one. Make us one. Make, make the church Make, make the people you've entrusted to my care one with us, just like we're one in the Trinity. Make us one. I'm convinced that before it's all said and done, the Father's going to answer that prayer. The day will come when we will be one. That he will indeed have a bride without spot, without wrinkle, because he loves his bride. He's gone to prepare a place for her. And as spotted and as wrinkled as the church worldwide looks today, she's going to be beautiful someday. It will all work together for good. He's got a, he's got a long-term plan. He sees the big picture. Love holds out for the long term. Doesn't demand instant results. God's all about the process. He's all about the journey for all of us. He loves his church. Jesus passionately loves his bride. And those, those are just a few of the ways that I came up with. I'm sure you could add dozens of other ways that he's loved us to the list. He saved us. He healed us. He speaks to us. Forgives our sins. He never gives up on us. Verse 35 says, by this, Jesus goes on, he says, by this, everyone will know you are my disciples if you love one another. 
I tell you what, as I read verse 35, I'm equally as impacted by what Jesus didn't say as by what he did say. He said that all men will know that we're his, that we're identified as his, if we love one another the way he's loved us. But he didn't say this. He didn't say everyone, by this, everyone will know you're my disciples if you're right. He didn't say that. He could have said that. He could have said, if you're right, then they'll know you're mine. Human beings, especially Christians, I've been doing this a long time, we place such high value on our perceived rightness. So much so that, we'll, that we will willingly sacrifice relationship after relationship on the altar of rightness. We just burn those suckers down, don't we? It ought not be. He didn't say all people will know your mind if you're right. It's not what he said. He didn't say all will know your mind if you have perfect theology and perfect doctrine. Not what he said. Theology is important. So sound doctrine. But he didn't say those were the identifiers. He said love was the identifiers. I watched Christian group after Christian group lob missiles at one another because they disagree over doctrine. Astonishing. Astonishing. He didn't say all men will know you are my disciples if you're politically correct. He didn't say all men will know you are my disciples if you save the environment. He didn't say all men will know you are my disciples if you save the unborn. He didn't say all men will know you are my disciples if you speak in tongues or if you prophesy. If you feed the hungry. He didn't say all men will know you are my disciples if you evangelize the lost. That's not what he said. Why? Because I've seen all those things done without love. How about you? I've seen prophecy without love. I've seen it all too often. I've seen people protect the environment without love. I've seen people defend the, the unborn without love. I've seen people try to save the lost with signs that say God hates fags without love. God hates sinners. It's not a very loving way to try and evangelize people, is it? I've seen all those good things done, good works done in non-loving ways. Hmm. You know what this means? It means it's more important to love than it is to be right. It's more important. It's more important to love than it is to be right. And every one of you have been faced with this choice. I can choose to love this person or I can stand in my position of rightness. And every single one of us have chosen rightness. At least once in our life. Probably more often than that. But this is what I'm learning. I've done this a long time. And I've come to this place of conviction. That if being right comes at the expense of love, the price is just too high. And I don't want to pay that price anymore. How about you? I would rather stand in wrongness. I would rather be perceived as wrong and choose to love the person across the table from me than to stand in my rightness and sacrifice yet one more relationship. 
Because not only is it the right thing to do, it's what Jesus challenges us to do. He didn't say, all men will know you are my disciples if you're right. He said, they'll know your mind by the way you love one another. We need to change some things. What about if those of us here refused to be a people who sacrifice love so easily? What if we made that decision? What would the ripple effects of that be going out from here? What if we were a people who refused to sacrifice love so cheaply? Sacrificing love for rightness? What a miserable trade. No businessman in the world would make that trade. Jesus said, everyone will know you're his by one simple qualifier, by love, by loving others the way he loves us. So, I have a question. Could it be that the world around us don't know that we're Jesus' disciples because we don't love one another the way he loved us? Could it be? So many people outside the church dislike us. There are whole segments of the population that despise us. And it's not because we've been too loving. <laughs> Some of them just hate us. We can change that. It doesn't have to stay that way. Scripture says, judge not lest ye be judged, right? I wonder if we've been so judgmental to those outside the church that we're simply reaping what we've sown. So what if we sow new seeds? What if we sow love? Maybe a decade or two from now we'll begin to reap a harvest of love where they'll love us because of the way we've loved them. I don't know. I think it's a worthy experiment. I really don't know what we got to lose. I think it's a game changer. Maybe we could start by loving one another inside the church. That would be good. Anybody here ever been hurt inside the church? None of you guys, right? None of you guys have ever been hurt by someone in the church, have you? I'm shocked. Maybe we can practice loving one another inside the church and then take it outside the church. I don't see any downside to love, inside or outside the church. I just kind of like to get it right inside the church first so that when we invite people in, it's a safe place for them. Why would we want to bring them into the chaos of a group of people not loving one another? Why would they want to join that? But this, I'm not just talking about Charlottetown Community Church, I'm talking about the whole church. What if it was the most loving place in town and everybody in the community knew that if you go to Charlottetown Community Church, you're going to be loved there. They're going to love you extravagantly. i tell you what. We're going to knock out walls. Put chairs in. I remember when I first got saved, I went to my first meeting expecting these people to hate me, but I made a friend of promise. And so I went. And when I went there, what I'll never forget is they loved me unconditionally. I did not deserve to be loved. I absolutely did not deserve to be loved. 
I had done bad things. And they loved me. They loved me extravagantly. Now, the music was cool and the people were nice, but it was the love that had this broken 16-year-old come back week after week after. I desperately needed to be loved, and they seemed to have it in limitless supply. I could not get enough. I would be the first person there. I would do any. You need help setting up the chairs, the book table, cleaning something, grab a, I don't care. There are loving people here. And I'd stay, I'd be the one to turn the lights off because I wanted to soak it up as much as I can. Love is attractive. It's irresistible. And every human being I've ever met still has met, still has room in their love tank. No one is filled to overflowing of capacity. Everybody needs to be loved. People, listen, it's our secret weapon. It's the most powerful weapon in our arsenal. But it only works if you give up rightness. You can't have both those tools in your hands at the same time. I've never seen that work. It seems to be one or the other. It requires two hands to pick each one of them up. You can't carry both. And why is it our secret weapon? Because scripture says that love never fails. <clears throat> it absolutely never fails. I don't care what the circumstance is, what the situation is. Choose love. And it'll work out pretty well for you. I remember a very wise old man said to me once. <clears throat> he said, Tom, when you don't know what to do, and it'll be often... Boy, was he prophetic. He says, Tom, when you don't know what to do, and it'll be often, choose love. It never fails. So I offer that same sage advice to you this morning. When you don't know what to do, when you're faced with choices, choose love. It'll absolutely never fail you. Another good friend of mine said to me once, and he was right too. I don't have a quote for that one. He says, love always looks like it's losing until it isn't. Love always looks like it's losing until it isn't. Love looked like it was losing on the cross until the resurrection. Love always looks like it's losing until it isn't. That's why we have to give up the rightness part. You've got to be willing to lose. And I won't lie to you, it can be personally expensive. It can be extremely expensive. But at the same time, it's powerfully effective. All men will know you are my disciples if you love one another. So what's our Monday morning takeaway? I ask you to do this. Just close your eyes for a moment, if you would, please. And think about the most impacting way that you've ever experienced God's love. Maybe it was a retreat or a conference. Maybe it was a, some quiet time you had. Maybe it was the, the day you got saved. Some other time, maybe somebody was praying for you. When was that moment when you felt most loved by God? What did it feel like that day? Remember it. Connect with those feelings. Identify it.
That good. Let, let those feelings, let that memory inspire you. And now ask God to bring another person in your world to mind. Any other person, a friend, a family member, co-worker, a neighbor, an enemy. Lord, bring somebody to mind. Somebody in each person here's sphere in their world. Bring someone to mind. Can you see a face in your mind's eye? If you could see a face in your mind's eye, would you raise a hand? Okay. Lord, show, show us a few more faces for the rest of us this morning. Bring someone to mind. Now, Lord, I ask that you would show us how we can love that person this week in a practical way. How can we love that person? How can we practically love that person? Maybe it's a phone call. Maybe just spend time with them. Bring them a meal. Pray for them. Visit with them or invite them over. Maybe you can do something nice for them. No strings attached. Like Karen did this week by paying for that family's meal. That was awesome, Karen. It's not because I'm good, God is good. God's very good. Maybe you could send a note of encouragement or just be kind to them. Never underestimate the power of kindness. Maybe forgive. Find some practical way that you can love them, that it lets them, at least in some small way, feel the way you felt when you experienced God's love. So Lord, I pray that you would, you would release creativity and inspiration in a plethora of ways that we could love other people. Give us insight and innovation. Do it, Lord. Lord, I pray that you would give us all the grace, all the power we need to love other people, to love one another the way that you love us. Lord, I pray that you give us your heart and that you give us your love. I pray that you would make Charlottetown Community Church a church full of lovers. I pray that we would be known as the church of love. That we'd be known by the way that we love. Show us how to love other Christians. Show us how to love those who are not yet Christians. Inspire us with new ways and creative ways to practice love. Ways that maybe we can do by ourselves. Give us ways, Lord, that maybe we could do as a group. Ways that we could practically love other people. Lord, I pray that you would teach us to love the way that you love. Do that, Lord. Do it, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Lord, you're so good. 
so kind. So God's shown me a few pictures. I just want to encourage a few people today. And so, um, Stephanie, I just looked at you this morning. And I saw, I saw like you had something in each one of your hands, and and um, and this is what it looked like to me. Um, um, sometimes you see these. Uh, I've never done it. I've seen pictures <laughs> of people who climb a mountain. They kind of have like these, these almost like pickaxe things that can really climb into the side of the mountain. And I see it like you've been equipped, and it's like you have these huge muscles, right? And you're just, whatever mountain you're climbing in life, I feel like there's something that, that you've been tackling, something that even attacking might be a, a better word. And you're well equipped for it. I just want to encourage you. I can imagine sometimes as fierce uh, of a climb, as difficult of a challenge it might be to do this. It's like you've got everything you need to do this well. Your Both hands are well equipped. You've got strength in you, and I'm just watching you. Just slam into that mouth. Step after step after step. So I, I have no idea. We haven't talked. I know what, whatever it is, what mountain you're climbing right now. But the picture I see, I think God wants me to encourage you that you're absolutely going to make it to the top. Even at some point, if you, get, if you get tired, if some point you stick it in and it slips, have no fear. You've got everything you need for the challenge that's ahead of you. And so, Lord, we pray for Stephanie. We ask that you bless her and that you'd encourage her. And, Lord, that you take her all the way to the top of that mountain. And, that she, and when she gets there, Lord, that you would meet her there and the two of you would celebrate together. I ask that you do that. Thank you, Jesus. And um, Colin, I was looking at you, and there was something on your head. It was like, um, it kind of looked like um, a football helmet without the guard on it. But I knew it really wasn't a football helmet, but it covered your head that way. And I really felt like it was a spiritual thing. And, um, and God was impacting your brain. He's impacting the way that you think. I feel like in... And it's like, this is what it's like. As I'm speaking this to you, it's like the switch has been turned on. And I think that I see light, little dots of light from all over the place inside of this helmet-looking thing. And the light is going into your brain. So God speaks to me in strange pictures. But this is what I think it is. I think from this moment forward, there's going to be the light of God's spirit. There's going to be his light that's going to impact the way you think, the way you see things. It's going to impact your understanding. And, um, and it's going to be like this. It's, it's going to be like walking into a dark house and turning the lights on. It's like, I'm familiar with this house. This is my house. This is your mind. You live here. Okay? But with the lights turned on, you could see everything. With the lights turned on, you're not going to get tripped up. With the lights on, you'll see the colors and the detail. Things are about to become much, much clearer in your thinking concerning spiritual things. And so, Lord, I can't make that happen. Only you can make it happen. We pray for Colin today that you would step into him, and, Lord, that you turn the lights on, that everything would become much clearer. Lord, I, I ask that you would encourage him. I just, as I'm sharing this, I feel this warmth in my heart. I feel like the Father's well pleased with you, the, the gifts and the talents, the, the capabilities uh, that he's given to you, and um, he delights to watch you use all those talents. Not only the music, but he's given you a very keen, a very fine mind. And, and almost like, um, you know when you learn to play guitar, 
there's that breakthrough moment, right? It's like in the beginning, it's like, I gotta make a C chord. I gotta put this finger here, this finger here, this finger here. And you kind of place a finger at a time, okay, now strum. And then at some point, there's a breakthrough, and you don't have to think about it. Boom, your fingers just go there, and you make the C chord, right? There's a breakthrough moment. I think you're gonna have, just like you've experienced those breakthrough moments with music, and there's usually a few of them as we practice our instrument. You're going to have those breakthrough moments in your thinking concerning spiritual things. In the beginning, it's going to feel like one finger at a time, and then boom, there's going to be a breakthrough. It's like, oh, that's clear. Then you're going to leap to the next thing and the next thing. And I feel like I'm not giving you words clear enough to express what I'm seeing. But bless them, Lord. Make, make it a reality in this heart, uh, just, the way, just the way that I see it. Thank you, Jesus. And uh, Aaron, I, look at you, I looked at you just a second ago, and I... I feel like there's some changes coming. There's some significant uh, changes uh, coming in your life. And it's good things. It's, it's, not, um, it's not accidents or tragedies or anything like that. I feel like there's some type of blessing that's like right in front of you. Um, I think you'll see it. I usually know what better than I know when. But this is the impression I have. I think before Christmas, there's some significant change that's going to come. And it's going to be a blessing to you uh, and to your, to your whole family. And so... So I just encourage you in that. And, um, don't be afraid to take, a, take the leap of faith that might uh, be somehow uh, connected to it. So, that make any sense to you? Yeah? Right. Thank you. And just so, so much good stuff. I feel like the Lord is well pleased with you guys. Um, so sometimes I, sometimes, sometimes I see pictures over the whole room. And... Um, and this, and this is kind of like what I see this morning. It's like I see fireworks going off above our heads, like in the, up toward the ceiling. And just like when fireworks ex explode, we see these streams of light, all different colors going different places. I feel like there's, there's, there's breakthrough, there's explosions in the heavenly, in the spiritual realm. And raining down upon us are the different colors, hot with the fire of God, hot with the power of God. And for me, different colors often represent different gifts of the Spirit. So, Lord, I pray for my friends today. Let it be so. I ask for breakthrough in the heavenly realm, that there would be explosions like fireworks over us in the spiritual realm of God, and that you would rain down powerful colors so that, that we would have the gifts of your Spirit uh, functioning and active, alive in our lives. And, and look, there's more color coming down than there are people in the room. You can have as much, you can have as much or as little as you want. He's not even going to force it on us. It's like it's there for you if you want it. And so, Lord, I ask that you do that. Rain the colors down. Rain the colors down on Charlottetown Community Church. Release. Release your spirit in powerful ways. And ask, Lord, that you would do this, that you do all of this. In the name of Jesus. Amen? Amen. I love you guys. Have an amazing day. And anybody wants to help the sins clean up, Wayne will give you a hug. <laughs>